0: Hello, and welcome to the third of our EBM roundups. I hope you're enjoying the new music, EDM for EBM, as we've been calling it in the office. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and as always, we have your favourite EBM nerds as well, Helen MacDonald.
1: Hi, Hi. Helen. Hi, Duncan.
0: And Carl Hennigan. Hi, Duncan. So, uh, both, could you just remind people who you are?
1: I'm Helen MacDonald. I'm Head of Education at the BMJ um, and one of their clinical editors.
0: And Carl?
2: Hi, I'm Carl Hennigan. I'm Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford, a GP, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine. And yet you find
0: the time to do a podcast with us on a on every month. Now, listeners, you're the other key component of this podcast, so keep letting us know what you think. Twitter, Facebook, uh, by email not in person. Um, We can barely get Carl into the building. Um, But but go to bmj.com slash podcast and you can find out how to get in touch with us and tell us what you think. So our first thing on our agenda every month is one thing to start, one thing to stop. Helen I'm going to come to you now. We've been spending a little while talking about this before we pressed record. Uh, So it's up to you to be as clear as possible.
1: So this is my to start this week. Well, it basically answers the question, what is the role of dual antiplatelet therapy after high-risk transient ischemic... Transient ischemic stroke. TIA. Yes, or minor stroke. (laughs) So specifically, does dual antiplatelet therapy with a combination of aspirin and clopidogrel, lead to a greater reduction in recurrent stroke and death compared to just using one agent on its own, typically aspirin, after you've had a high-risk TIA or minor stroke. And this is one of our series of rapid recommendation articles. So over the summer, there was a new trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this trial triggered us to do a rapid recommendation so an updated systematic review and meta-analysis on this question along with a recommendation article. So at the moment most guidelines recommend that you have a single antiplatelet agent if you've had a high-risk TIA or a minor stroke but aspirin and clopidogrel have a synergistic action and so it's been thought to be plausible for a long time that the two drugs taken together might be better for preventing stroke than one there have been studies in the long-term use after stroke and they did not show that having two drugs was better than one so they're not used for that they're considered a bit risky after you've had a major stroke the reason is because there's concern that you might get too much bleeding in your brain so there might be more harmful than they are helpful and so this particular trial that came out in NEJM was looking at short-term use after particularly a minor stroke or high-risk TIA. Does that make it clearer? Are you are you with me? Mostly with you. Mostly with me. Okay.
2: Are you with yourself though? <laughs> I'm, I'm
1: so, sort of with myself. So when they say high-risk TIA, what they mean are people who have a score of six or seven on the ABCD Two score, which is this uh, score to assess the severity of your TIA, and those people have about a one in ten chance over the subsequent seven days of going on to have a stroke. So we have that group of people with high risk TIA, or another group of people with minor stroke. Um, so minor stroke is typically identified on the National Institute of Health Stroke Scale, or the NIHSS score. So it's having a score of under three. It's a little bit more difficult to say exactly what that means, but typically it means that you're you're not going to have too much ongoing disability. So
2: now. If I look up my NICE guidelines now, I actually do particularly recommend the clinical knowledge summaries at NICE. They're really helpful. But what that says is standard treatment is clopidogrel 75 milligrams daily. And then it talks about dual therapy with aspirin and clopidogrel may be initiated in secondary care for the first three months following ischemic stroke or TIA. Now, that means you're saying the guidelines are wrong.
1: Well, yes, that is that. Well, that is what this is suggesting. So,
2: so Helen Macdonald, <laughs> let me get this on the record. I feel like I'm doing a politician on the record. Nice, you are wrong.
1: I don't think that's fair. I don't think Nice were wrong, but I don't no, think do Ni- I like don't think Nice have looked at this new evidence yet. Uh, so, so hopefully, what this is going to do is offer clinicians some guidance until some of these yeah, but that other could take many years. Well, it but- could, and so in the meantime, you can look at our beautiful published BMJ rapid recommendation which you'll be relieved to know was not produced by me but was in fact produced by a panel of experts and when I say experts I mean a very broad collection of experts. The panel for this guideline recommendation were three patients who have lived experience of stroke, one adult who cares for someone with a stroke and then we had some clinical experts so five neurologists, a vascular surgeon, some methodologists some general doctors, a physio, a nurse and a critical care physician. So quite a broad collection of people with lots of different expertise to bring. And they together sat down and decided for people in this situation, what are the outcomes that really matter to them? And what they decided was patients in this situation are most interested in in stroke. That's the thing that they valued the most, preventing a stroke after you've had one minor stroke or a high-risk TIA. They were also interested in whether there was a difference in death and they were also interested in whether there were any predictable harms, particularly um, bleeding uh, from other parts of your body, like having a a GI bleed. Can
2: I not just ask though, (laughs) aren't they fairly predictable outcomes?
1: I think they are uh, to some extent, but I think where where the panel is important and particularly where the patient's perspective is important is understanding how you then might weigh those two things. So if something you're interested in preventing is stroke and something that you're also interested in so avoiding is bleeding, what? so it's balancing up those those two things.
2: And, and how did that go about then with patients? Because it must be quite difficult to balance them two up.
1: Well, they have... A number of things to help them so they had requested um, a systematic review and meta-analysis they also usually look for systematic evidence on the values and preferences of patients in this type of position there wasn't really very much evidence out there on this on what patients in this situation value so they were reliant to some extent on the expertise of the individual patients in the panel but the patients in their preparation are asked not to really just talk about their own experience but to try and put themselves in the shoes of other people who might be a bit like them and to talk about whether they think that patients would all want similar things or if actually this is something where some patients may very much value one thing And other people may value another, particularly if treatments are very burdensome, involve a lot of time or might be very expensive.
2: So all of that sounds pretty complicated because we're really interested in how you use patients and members of the public in systematic reviews. Mm -hmm. But we think it's pretty early on in terms of how you might go about that Mm. best.
1: I think you're right. The point is fair. There isn't very good guidance or even necessarily best practice established around how to involve patients and the public.
0: So what was the verdict? Do you uh, have So a... the
1: verdict was that overall the panel were confident that dual antiplatelet therapy um, started within 24 hours of the symptom onset and used for a short course, which was between 10 and 21 days as opposed to up to three months reduced the risk of non-fatal recurrent stroke in the first three months after your minor stroke or TIA by just short of 2%. And that evidence was high quality. It also reduced functional disability and improved your quality of life. It didn't affect or cause death and it didn't alter MI or recurrent TIA and that was traded off against some harms which is a small but notable increase in moderate or major extracranial bleeding so around 0.2% of people.
2: I think what's really interesting here is the point that this illustrates why we need a new system of rapid production of evidence in systematic reviews. You go to NICE I now know Helen MacDonald is saying, don't go there, come to me instead, listen to our rapid, rapid recommendations. But we have to have a rethink of how this information is incorporated in guidelines and disseminated and updated rapidly, because there could be another trial tomorrow on this issue.
1: There could. And so we have a box in our article for, for updates. So if something new was to come out, we would go back and add in that trial to the to the box and then make the the panel would make a judgment as to whether they thought they should update the systematic review or alter the guideline because we're aware that it's very hard to create and and people tend not to have sort of living guidelines. They're they're not live. So if a new piece of information comes out, how do you design a system to automatically feed that in
2: sounds like what you really need is a rapid recommendation wikipedia type approach where you could update it on the go when new evidence emerges. particularly the idea of even if you didn't update it you could still incorporate the fact here's some new evidence that you might want to take account of that has just come out yeah but we haven't incorporated it yet yeah we are trying
1: yeah yeah exactly um, so a final point is that there are still some uncertainties. One is that it's not particularly clear what the optimum starting dose of clopidogrel or aspirin should be or the maintenance dose of those agents. And there is now, I think, some interest in knowing whether dual antiplatelet therapy might be effective in other populations. So in people with lower risk TIA, particularly and in people with more moderate rather than minor stroke, either if they are or if they're not having thrombolysis treatment. So
0: is that practice changing for you? Or are you going to go away, both of you, either of you, and uh, uh, change what you do on a daily basis there?
2: Well, um, I guess the thing is TIA patients in this situation are normally seen in the urgent care setting, but I think I, I see a patient with a TIA and I expect to see them back in practice seeing them on this dual therapy. I think it'd be interesting to know how does this type of information disseminate into practice to actually change the way neurologists, stroke physicians go about this. And I I think it'd be interesting to ask a stroke physician Mm. what exactly they will do differently based on this evidence.
3: One of the interesting things that came out from this um, review and from the trials is the fact that TIA... And minor stroke are now a major to be treated as a major emergency, right? Because if you know, notice, these drugs were always started within 12 or 24 hours from onset of symptoms, and you can treat for a short period of time, uh, 21 days. And there's good evidence that that's, that that works in terms of preventing recurrent stroke. So that means that someone who pretends to their uh, physician or to the emergency room within. Uh, the first 12-24 hours with a minor stroke or TIA who would normally have been put to the back of the list and eventually seen, really have to be seen straight away so that a decision can be made about treatment. It is a change in some systems. I think that often uh, we, a stroke and hospitals and emergency room and so on, we focus very much on people coming in with large strokes to whom we can give uh, thrombolytics or do an endovascular procedure. Uh, often people with DIA will call their uh, GP who may say, you know, go to the emergency room or they may say, well, you know, come and see me later today or tomorrow and we'll fit you in and see what we can do. So this, this study actually highlights that this patient should be triaged quickly in the emergency room and be evaluated or, or by their GP but be evaluated quickly so that treatment strategies can be started in time. I think that um, we all see a good number of patients presenting with this. And there's a history that um, patients, maybe 10 to 20% of people with stroke on close questioning have had an episode suggestive of a TIA. So it's not an insignificant number of patients who present with the symptoms. And the the key thing is this this is a group of people in whom intervention will really make a difference, right? Because they're still not disabled by their um, event. Now, the, the, the other caveat, however, is that this trial really included people who weren't eligible for other preventive strategies, right? So if you present with a TIA or a minor stroke, the key thing is to identify do you have carotid stenosis, in which case, you know, there's solid evidence that carotid endarterectomers stenting will reduce the risk of stroke very dramatically. And you have to make sure they don't have atrial fibrillation because we know in those people the use of anticoagulation is the indicated treatment to really reduce the risk of stroke. So that means if you come in with a TIA or minor stroke, you need to be seen, not just starting dual antiplatelet, but be seen, exclude carotid disease, exclude um, atrial fibrillation. If none of those are found, then start dual antiplatelet therapy within 24 hours of onset of symptoms and then continue it for 21 days, at which point you switch to a single agent.
0: Carl, oh, let's turn to you. Uh, what is your verdict of the week? What do you want to start or stop doing?
2: Oh Okay, there was quite a number of systematic reviews on exercise rehabilitation in chronic heart failure, the effects of exercise training on pulmonary function in adults with chronic lung disease, and I thought, wow, I thought we all knew this exercise is a good thing, and I asked one of my colleagues about this, David Noonan, about particularly, didn't we know this, and he was pretty clear that we did know this, but There was one review on exercise, and with it being January, everybody out there in the New Year is thinking exercise, all your New Year's resolution, but this one caught my eye in the British Journal of General Practice was a systematic review of primary care interventions for delaying and reversing frailty, which is interesting because uh, they've took a number of studies. They found 46 studies uh, were included. Interestingly, only four predate 2010. So the majority of this research is coming in the last seven or eight years as we're seeing ageing population and frailty has become a major issue. The most common place these studies are done is in Japan. Ten studies were done there. Because there's
1: lots of frail elderly people Yeah, so I guess if
2: you go to the areas where you've got the problems, they've got an ageing population... They see this as a major issue. So I thought that was the first interesting point. What they didn't do were able to say, we can put all these studies together because there's lots of different interventions. Mm. But they came to a combination, you know, 46 studies, 15,690 participants, but said a combination of muscle strength training and protein supplementation was the most effective intervention to delay or reverse frailty, and the easiest to implement in primary care. Now, that was quite interesting, and I've actually wrote to the authors of this because I found it so interesting. They did a, a sort of figure which was the sort of relative effectiveness and compared it to the relative ease of implementation. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's really mm. neat. And they showed the easiest to deliver with the most effect was mixed exercise, a bit of strength, aerobic balance, coordination. In the middle of e- of effectiveness was Tai Chi, but easy to do. And then down less effective was walking health education, which was easy to do, but less effective. Mm. And I, I just was like, wow, this could be a really new way of thinking for you, particularly non-drug interventions mm. in systematic mm. reviews. I thought, I'm going to look into this because I thought this is quite useful to have. But it also shows um, in my urgent care do- job, I do a lot of visits in nursing homes you see a lot of sedentary people nowadays. And, and we know when you're younger, it's, it's do your exercise, your cardio. But the question is, it's the strength issues that are really important, I think, with this. Because mm. it's being able to get out of the chair. And when I talked to David Noonan, he talked a bit about this idea of drop a decade. That you can, by increasing your strength... You can go back a decade in time, if you like.
0: And who doesn't want that uh, for their new year? So shall we hear from David now?
4: So they performed a search of looking at um, multiple databases to look for randomised trials or cohort studies where people were followed up over time. And either they were uh, given intervention of exercise or other types of interventions, or they were doing it anyway in their natural environments. And they wanted to, to put together all the evidence showing whether um, exercise and other interventions, it wasn't just exercise in here, um, helped to improve some frailty um, scores and some frailty indices. The answer from the evidence they've shown in this paper is that strength exercises are better than both mixed and just cardiovascular type aerobic activities for improving your frailty indexes. But don't forget, frailty indices are things like your ability to get up out of a chair. So whether your heart works better or not, you can see why strength would, would naturally improve that kind of outcome. In fact, in um, 2017, our paper with Mule Gray in the BMJ, we did some analysis, I did the work on looking at, it's called a get up out of your chair and go test. Mule, Mule Gray likes to call it the um, get to the toilet on time test. If you've got below-par ability, and you improve your strength training, your, your ability to get up out of your chair, through strength training, or another means, by um, 25%, you can decrease your age by 10 years. So you can be as quick or as good as getting to the toilet as someone 10 years younger than you via doing some strength training, just improving that ability, that functional ability to move. And you're right, in places like, you know wherever you go, you can see this being a real problem, like, that person cannot actually get up out of the chair anymore. And that's a real important indicator for, you know, for serious, more serious outcomes later on.
0: That was David Noonan from the Centre
2: of Evidence Based Medicine in Oxford. I, I think what this shows, which I, I'll just repeat what I said, is um, this is interesting. Is there's a particular area of evidence in terms of exercise, which is the elderly and frail, which we now need to look in. There were only two studies done in the UK. I think you could really do something dynamic in strength training, all this muscle exercise, thinking, could this actually help us prevent a lot of the frailty and a lot of the problems that go with that, particularly frailty increase, falls, dependency, disability and death. And all of that can be addressed, I think, with an approach to the research in this area.
0: So something to start doing if you're old. Protein supplements and strength training. So, time for our next section, the rant. Uh, Helen, last time we challenged you, as you're so mild-mannered. Um, Carl I didn't think you could get yourself worked up about anything. So in the intervening month have you managed what's reached your report?
1: well i have i got myself sort of so worked up i almost became lost for words which is even more unusual <laughs> than me getting angry which is in the christmas bmj in these three articles that i've chosen um that that come up one issue from from a variety of different perspectives and the theme is really uh gender discrimination in the workplace, so both in clinical medicine and in academic medicine. Um, And there is a qualitative research paper for people who are concerned that we don't publish enough qualitative research, which is based on a post on the Physician Mums Facebook group um, asking for people to describe and share their experiences of discrimination in the workplace. And I think, well, I found as a woman reading some of the quotes, some of them sound um, quite unpleasant, but they very much resonate with me. And I think what it reveals when you summarise this is that discrimination in the workplace is quite a complicated matter. So they derive some themes from this and say that there are a number of drivers Broader cultural norms, the culture of medicine, the structure of medicine, which can help to drive discrimination in the workplace. There are interpersonal mediators, so relationships with your patients, with your colleagues, with administrative staff and support staff, which set expectations. There are experiences of maternal discrimination, themes amongst those, such as gender do- job expectations. Challenging work-life balance, particularly around having children, financial inequalities, limited opportunities for advancement, challenging pregnancy and postpartum period. As I said, and the impacts on that are there are psychological impacts for the, for the women being affected. There are downsides for the healthcare system, downsides for that person's career, but also downsides for, for their family more broadly in general. So, can
2: I ask you a question? Do you yes. think this is All aspects of medicine, because in in a career like primary care, you jump into primary care and within a year you're a GP and you can operate on a level playing field, whereas in many specialties there are career structures where you've got to go through significant training that's quite competitive, there are more men particularly in some areas of Mm -hmm. surgery that Mm -hmm. dominate, or is this across the board based on what you've read?
1: I didn't get a strong sense of that. My, my feeling is that it's across the board, but it probably comes across slightly differently. So I think, yes, you reach your kind of certificate of training completion in in the UK for general practice faster than some of the other specialties. And that gives you, to some extent, an advantage. No one can take away the mm. fact that you are now a GP. But I think it might manifest in other ways. For example, the opportunities that you might get outside the clinic, um, so taking on teaching and training or taking on management or leadership roles and even in terms of the construct of your surgery if you need to leave to do school pickup for example maybe you're only going to work mornings and we all know that working a GP morning is not working a morning it's sort of working till mid-afternoon so, so you kind of end up doing doing a career that's maybe more nine till three and it, it's called a half day but <laughs> it's not really a half day so I think, I think it comes a Comes good, out in different ways. Just to ways. remind,
2: I did do the pickup, but we do it in Oxford good. on a bike.
1: it's well, a bit different. Good but... for the environment as well. <laughs> and some of these issues, I think you're right. You did the pickup. They're not strictly around women because men could equally be doing those things. But I think it is like a trend, and a and a sort of on average, it's more likely to be the female of a of a partnership doing that perhaps than than males. So then, if you come across that was that was my first article. There's there's then a very interesting um, essay which is called "The Trouble with Girls: Obstacles to Women's Success in Medicine and Research," an essay by Laurie Garrett. So interestingly, this has something in it which might interest you, Carl, because it is about evidence. So so there's various things that she mentions, sort I'm of stereotypical things. Two thirds of women have been harassed. Extreme bias in research funding. We then come down to so evidence that women are paid less in research, evidence that women have received smaller grants on average than their male counterparts. And it says that when review committees, the people awarding these grants, were blinded to the names and the sex of the principal investigators, they awarded far more and larger grants to women. And this seems to have been done by the Wellcome Trust because they explained, and this is in quotes, that this was attributable to less favourable assessments of women as principal investigators, not to differences and assessments in the quality of science led by women.
2: This is really interesting. The idea that you take away the issues that lead to conflicts, lead to discrimination, prejudice, that open up the potential to just focus on the science and understand that this is an important question, as opposed to have some preconceptions, which I do totally think blind people in all sorts of ways, and I think this could be a sort of bit of a sea change actually
1: and finally, the final article, yeah. because Carl did say that some of it was funny uh, on on the on the theme, there is a lexicon for gender bias in academia and medicine, which debunks some of these uh, things, which which maybe uh, I think women will find quite easy to relate to. Other people may or or may not, Um, which includes explaining terms like mansplaining the concept that Something is explained usually by a man to a woman in quite a condescending or patronising way. Bro appropriation when a, when a man takes credit for a woman's idea, and the idea of a manal panel of speakers populated entirely by men. And obviously, this is written in quite a, a provocative way, and some of the responses suggest that 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 people don't find it that funny, or, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and think it's you know sort of um, inappropriate. But I think whatever your whatever you're looking for in your Christmas issue on gender discrimination, you could find, because you've got some research there, uh, a nice uh, essay and something um, to either feel very annoyed about reading these slightly humorous... Um, well, that's interesting,
2: coming on the, the, the mannel. Yeah. We've had this issue within EBM Live. Yes, we have. And yeah. it's come about probably about six, seven years ago. In fact, the person who brought it up was Margaret McCartney. Mm-hmm. He sent a very irritating email, <laughs> particularly to me, and said, you've had a mannel. And at the time, I was a bit like, oh, yeah, we have. And so we've worked very hard to ensure that our panels across the board always reflect uh, gender, and every panel now does do that. My position is to say I think there's a sort of leadership issue here as well, though, because I think... Putting yourself out there and more women putting themselves out there when they're invited will then send the message to the next generation, this is possible, and it is a lot of fun, and it does add value, but I also think when the invite comes through the post, particularly from EBM Live...
1: You have to say yes. You have
2: to say yes.
0: Definitely. Um, So those three articles are in our Christmas edition... Which uh, is, are still available online for everyone to read for free. And that uh, Laurie Garrett is particularly good. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and that comes through in her writing. Thank you, Helen. Rant achieved.
1: Rant achieved.
0: Well done. Now, we're recording this in December before Christmas just before we probably all head to the pub. And at this point in the festive period, I'm positively looking forward to dry January. But Carl, you're here to tell me that I should just carry on, that be damned.
2: Well, it is interesting. You're right, we're here at the BMJ. In fact, it's the BMJ Christmas party. Well, there will be alcohol this evening and people will be drinking. And I, and I guess the issue is, as you get older, you start to get more excited about your sort of January type of resolutions that you're going to bring And you start to think, well, I'm going to exercise more, lose weight. But particularly, I've been interested in this, why do dry January? Um, There's a website out there, Alcohol Change UK, which is a whole website about this particular issue in January.
0: So what is dry January? Okay,
2: so in 2013, it was started as, you know, you've had these movements where you take a whole month... And you decide to stop doing something or start doing something. People will be aware of November, where yeah. people drive, men grow a moustache for prostate cancer charities. This is, interestingly, in January, you should stop alcohol completely.
1: So what's the evidence?
2: Well, this is interesting. The evidence is actually more just before and after and surveys that people okay. will report they sleep better, have more energy, some lose weight and save money. Well, you particularly will save money. Mm-hmm. And others notice improvement in their skin and hair. <laughs> I wonder sure. how that question
1: <laughs> got on the survey. <laughs> but,
2: you know, well, but we do know alcohol is a huge problem. Yeah and uh you know over 10% of high blood pressure in men is alcohol related so yeah, yeah so lots of int- and alcohol that. is related Chronic liver disease is one of the only chronic conditions yes, on the exactly, rise, it? so it's a huge issue. But I was interested in this paper, which is the growth of Dry January promoting participation and the benefits of participation in the European Journal of Public Health. And what they've showed is the number of registrants on the on the website has grown from four thousand in 2013 to nearly sixty thousand. That's in, in tr- the UK. In the UK in mm-hmm. 2016. So, but what happened is Public Health England have been involved in this to promote it.
1: Uh-huh.
4: So
2: I think your question about evidence is completely appropriate because I think it is important still to step back and go, if you're willing to participate in this intervention, you should be randomised to dry January or not. Because the question is, and there is some evidence... But how do you do that? Well, you, you <laughs> sign up to the website and we give you the advice and say, in January, please try and be abstinent. Then you report in whether you were actually abstinent or not versus... In January just try and moderate your alcohol intake. Uh,
1: okay. So you mean just Yeah. Yeah, okay. I see. Because the problem
2: with it. the problem with abstinence is there is some evidence that what happens is those people who are abstinent completely revert to binge drinking on February the first and start where they go. So you want to know over the long term, mm. does it make a difference? So I think mm. this is an interesting question. I have a problem though. My birthday is on twenty third of January. <laughs> Therefore, I think I can make it to then. But on the 23rd of January, which I think is officially the end of the miserable time, <laughs> mm-hmm. because by then people have been skint and they go, I will come out. I think I'm going to do 23 days of abstination. But on the 23rd, you're welcome to come out. I'll be in the King's Arms in Oxford having a pint. Sorry about that. Try January, people. So here's Hola. a
1: question. If if you were Public Health England and and you accept that maybe there isn't very much evidence out there, Um, on whether you should do this or not what could they actually collect now so one option you're saying is they could they could run some kind of trial through that website where you were either invited to moderate your alcohol intake or or totally abstain. But what would you actually measure?
2: Well, I think you'd measure beyond one month, you see. You want to know at six months and a year what's happening with your alcohol intake. Yeah. So, okay, you might have given up for four weeks, but what happens if at six months that actually leads to increased alcohol? Over the long period. So I think this is about looking at six months to a year outcomes. Mm -hmm. So I can understand we all will have periods. It's a bit like weight loss where we have a binge on losing weight. But actually, if you keep putting on more weight and getting heavier or you put on you drink more as a consequence of this few weeks Mm -hmm. of giving up, that's a bad thing, isn't it? It could be. And I'm particularly interested in a trial of abstinence versus moderation advice. Mm-hmm. over six months to a year to see what happens public health England get your pocket hands in your pocket and fund the <laughs> trial as opposed to just funding the information and Run the by female investigator oh and welcome funded by welcome blinded to the allocation <laughs> of the researcher
0: but is all of this stuff working because if you have a look at the statistics um, on the ons website it looks like drinking habits in the uk are slowly decreasing over time going down ever so slightly from 2005, and we know that data about children, you mentioned um, that American data was about kids over 12, and Mm. and that uh, population has really dropped. So there's definitely something going on with these kind of dry Januarys. people just being more aware, kind of wanting to change their behaviour a bit more.
2: I think we are starting to get a bit of the message that alcohol has been incredibly cheap, hasn't it, in particularly supermarkets, and so the sort of home-based drinking in the middle-aged, which gives you that middle-aged spread, which will be disappearing in January, has become a problem. And our message is getting over. And in Scotland, they've introduced a tax now to raise Mm -hmm. the minimum price of alcohol. I think we have replaced smoking with alcohol, and we need to keep our messages on public health that these are incredibly important issues. And this problem with alcohol and fatty liver and the consequences of that, and like I said about blood pressure, are a huge issue for the health service that create significant morbidity that will lead to problems accumulating in middle age, if you like.
0: Well, thanks, guys. That was a good January-themed roundup following uh, the Christmas edition and dry January. That's it for this month. We'll be back next month. And until then, let us know what you think. Go on to bmj.com slash podcast. I'll tell you how to get in touch. If you haven't done so yet, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We're available in most places now. So until next time, I'm Duncan Jarvis.
1: I'm Helen McDonald.
0: I'm Carl Hennigan. Thanks for listening, everyone.